Welcome to episode 18 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. This is your host, Eric Gall. And for all of our listeners, I just want to remind you that we are currently still recording our mini-series on housing for people with a disability. And uh, if that's a topic that interests you, make sure to go over to empoweringability.org and grab the free download on creating uh, your home. It's a great workbook that'll help you start to think about what your vision is for home and how to start to implement that and start the conversation. So go on over to empoweringability.org and grab that for you and your family. So today's episode is one that I am super excited about. Our guest is Al Edmanski. And Al is one of those people that I look up to as a mentor, and he's really helped to shape my thinking about the approach that I take to make the social change and the impact that I want to make on the world. And so Al is uh, really uh, an innovator. He's a social entrepreneur, uh, a community organizer, an author. And Al's really regarded as one of the world's biggest social innovators of our time. Um, he's created a ton of uh, social good in, in Canada, especially in the disability space with creating or, or leading, helping to lead the charge on creating the registered disability savings plan. Um, and Al and I will get into that a little bit on the podcast, talk about um talk about that. We dive into Al's latest book, Impact, Six Patterns to Spread uh, Your Social Innovation. And we really focus on the first pattern, um, which is thinking and acting like a movement. And Al tells us what that's all about and and how you can think and act like a movement and gives you some really clear-cut steps on on how to do that. we also get into the disability movement and we talk about a couple of the, the arms in the disability movement, the family arm and the individual arm. And we talk about the concept, uh, Al brings in the concept of the evolution of consciousness of individuals that have a, a disability. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation and that perspective from Al. Uh, we talk about the current work that Al is working on uh, with basic income. And there's some great information in the podcast on that. And we also get into the current work that Al's working on and, and the book that he's writing. So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. And uh, I, know, I know that I really enjoyed this conversation with Al. So here you go. Hey, Al, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Nice to be here. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, me as well. Um, again, super grateful for you to, to create some space uh, to, to chat today and, and for the interview. Um, so Al, I think maybe an easy um, starting point would be uh, just to quickly talk about the RDSP, because I know you had a uh, played a, a fundamental role in the creation of the RDSP, and we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. So would you be able to just to give uh, a short uh, high level um, overview of of what the RDSP is, and I guess the the benefit that that provides to um, individuals with a disability. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the RDSP is um, a savings plan for uh, people with disabilities. Uh, thus, the name, the Registered Disability Savings Plan. 
it, it has uh, three components to it. Um, first is the contributions that can be made uh, either by the individual himself or herself or their family or friends or, or indeed anyone um, into uh, their registered disability savings plan. Uh, a second component are matching grants uh, from the federal government. Depending on the amount you put in, on your income, um, there's matching that is as high as three to one, uh, and then down to two to one and one to one. Um, and then on top of that, the third component is a registered disability savings bond of a thousand dollars a year uh, for 20 years. So the registered disability savings plan was a dream of parents who wanted to um, make uh, uh, money available to their sons and daughters immediately when they needed it without being clawed back by the social welfare systems that we have in Canada. So it has achieved that purpose uh, because um, the asset in a registered disability savings plan does not jeopardize eligibility for government benefits. And furthermore, uh, when the funds are used, they are not clawed back by, again, the disability welfare system in Canada. Uh, perhaps the biggest uh, impact of the registered disability savings plan beyond the uh, economic fortunes of individuals is uh, the fact that it has become a, become a tool of addressing uh, poverty experienced by people with disabilities. Right. And and as I understand it, Al, those different components, the grant and the bond, um, allow families that, that might not be able to have the funds to contribute still participate in the program. Could you talk a little bit to that? Yeah. So you... Um, so the price of eligibility for the registered disability savings plan is the uh, is being eligible for the disability tax credit. And fundamentally, that is about the existence of a ongoing disability or disabling condition. And once you're eligible for the disability tax credit, you're then eligible for the registered disability savings plan. And even if you have no funds to contribute yourself, uh, the bond of $1,000 is still available to you. And even if you're not able to contribute um, as much as the limits allow, uh, you can still get the matching grants available uh, from the federal government. Right. And, and over the long run, that can be um, a substantial uh, amount of money with once you start including compound interest. So, um, so that's a huge benefit to, to families, for sure, or to individuals with a disability. Yeah, I'm running into people now who've got, um, you know, $50,000, $70,000 in the registered disability savings plan. And um, they've got big dreams. They've got plans on how they want to use it. And um, and they're able to without the, the fear of penalties and clawbacks that uh, used to exist when you had income above the, uh, you know, the basic limits. Yeah, that's fantastic and uh, super appreciative on behalf of, of, you know, my sister and my family for the work that you did to to put that in place. And I know there, it wasn't just um, you, there's other people involved, but uh, super grateful for, for that work and um, creating that benefit. Yeah, it was a collaborative effort by individuals and families uh, from coast to coast. 
and also by support or with support from state planners, um, lawyers, trust companies, and uh, Canadian financial institutions. Big kudos to, to all those folks that were involved. So let's let's switch gears here for a sec, Al. And um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Roz Vincent, gifted me your book, um, Impact, uh, Six Patterns to Spread Your Social Innovation. And particularly, um, maybe we could touch on the, one of the uh, first uh, of the six uh, patterns, Think Like a Movement. Could you dive into that a little bit and, and explain um, what Think Like a Movement means and um, the impact that that has on spreading social innovation? Yeah, the, the, uh, I actually will add just a minor uh, um, addition to that, uh, to that pattern. It's think and act like a movement. Um, so, and a good illustration of that is the Registered Disability Savings Plan, uh, plan of the organization that I helped co-found um, is based uh, on the west coast of Canada. It's based in Vancouver. Relatively small organization, uh, and like all small organization, uh, it had it had a big idea, which was what became ultimately the Registered Disability Savings Plan. But it would have been impossible for Plan to have lobbied through uh, something as substantial as a Registered Disability Savings Plan on its own. And it, even in the process of seeking allies, it would have been made more difficult if people thought that it was a plan thing and proposal. And while people are you know, prepared to support to some extent what other organizations do, it's only when they feel that there is something that they all have in common um, that big ideas really come into reality. And so... Um, we began to develop this way of thinking and plan, uh, which, um, you know, kind of split us in two. And so for a lot of what we did, we thought and acted like an organization because that's what you must do. There's day-to-day -day responsibilities, often just pure survival, uh, and a range of issues that are right in front of your face that you have to address immediately. And the organization has to do that. That's your mandate. That's what the board expects of you. That's why you've been hired as staff. So that's one um, stream, if you will. Uh, but uh, in order to uh, address the broader uh, initiative that will be of benefit uh, to all people with disabilities and their family and their families and not just plan members, um, we began to talk about thinking and acting like a movement. And for us, that meant occurring favor, uh, seeking alliances, reaching out to friends and allies in the disability world, but also to strangers and uh, to some extent to adversaries, to people who had a different view of what would be in the best interests of people with disabilities or people who didn't particularly care about the welfare of people with disabilities. So we tried to create as big a tent as possible and to get as many of the players uh, moving in the same direction toward the ultimate end of an RDSP as possible. So that's what thinking and acting like a movement is. It's not about creating your own movement. We're already, all of us, already part of any number of movements. And uh, the question is, which ones um, 
do we want to take the time to bring some en- of our energy and resources into in order to further our best interests as well? Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's helped to shape my thinking um, as, uh, you know, I'm part of the, the the disability movement or the family movement to um, to help improve or help uh, individuals with and families with disabilities live live ordinary lives. And my mentality when I first started was, you know, I can create all this content and I can do all this great coaching and, and help a bunch of families. But I needed to consider who who were already was in that space and and how can I collaborate with them to um, add to to um, what's already happening um, rather than just try and you know be a, a lone wolf and not being able to make much of an impact. It, it shifted the mindset in terms of collaborating, partnering, and being a part of the movement rather than thinking that you know this is something that that I can go do myself. So I appreciate uh, your words and, and helping me to to shift my thinking in that space. Yeah, and movements do um, what it's very hard for organizations or even a coalition of organizations to do, which is they create a popular support and the cultural receptivity that emboldens politicians, that enables politicians to make bold decisions. Otherwise, politicians are stuck trying to make decisions among a, a, a range of competing interests. And they're going to do that anyway, but if they know that there's substantial support behind an idea, that will embolden them. And uh, so that moves beyond organizational, in my view, beyond coalitions, uh, indeed, perhaps even beyond uh, a sector approach to addressing our tough social, financial, and environmental challenges, uh, and to sort of create as wide a base as possible because I think I mean you might get lucky and strategically uh, convince politicians to take a risk on something and be successful at that but most of the time politicians because it's their job to pay attention to the currents of the popular support most of the time they will ignore your entreaties unless they're picking up um, a substantial degree of receptivity in the larger public. And and that, I think, is um, the job that movements can do better than organizations. Right. And yeah. it's interesting what popped, as you were talking there, Al, what popped into my mind is is like um, on Twitter or on Facebook, it'll show you what's trending. Um, your your movement has to be trending for a politician to, to take notice. Yeah, and and I, I think maybe trend is the right word, although I think it's probably being misused by by Twitter. Um, you know, there has to be some substance behind that, some longevity behind that. It has to have seeped into the, um, if you will, the water supply. You know, of um, you know, of a um, of a political territory, whether that's a municipality, a province, or, you know, a country or, or beyond. And that takes time. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, that the, the, um, the, the time to reach out and make peace with people that you haven't worked well with before um, is, you know, gives you some sense of the time requirements uh, 
because that doesn't happen overnight. And so it's, I suppose if it's a trend, it's a, it's a, it's a long-term trend as opposed to maybe, maybe Twitter would be better to say what's fatting now, <laughs> what's right. the current fad. Um, uh, and you know, it's, it's in many ways, it's become my mantra, uh, for, for the work, for the work I do on, on any of the, of the societal challenges that we face, which is how are we broadening our base beyond the limited number of people that we talk to in the disability world? We tend to talk to each other. There's almost a kind of a formulaic way of speaking. We make all kinds of assumptions about each other. Um, and we don't realize that we're actually talking um, to a relatively small proportion of the disability world and an even smaller proportion of the larger world. And if we have bold ambitions and big dreams for the um, complete participation uh, of people with disabilities in society and for uh, the recognition of everyone's value and worth, then we're going to need to talk to more than just the people that we tend to talk to on a regular basis. And so that's another variation of thinking and acting like a movement, uh, Eric. Yeah. So a question that comes to mind for someone listening to this podcast, how could they act on that? Is there a couple of examples that, that come to mind? Well, the most practical thing uh, to start with, I think, is to begin to calculate the movements you're already part of. And, um, you know, so whatever, whatever the issue is, um, if it's, if it's poverty uh, and people with disabilities, then you're, you're going to encounter in the kind of poverty reduction field, a number of approaches. Uh, you're going to have, uh, people who want the minimum wage to be increased. You're going to encounter people who want to reform welfare. You're going to, or people who want to improve the availability of, of affordable social housing. You're going to have people who talk about fair wage, and then you're going to have people like me who, who want to talk about basic income. But then, if you broaden the tent just a little bit further, you realize that people who are working in the area of food security are also addressing the question of getting good nutritional food. Uh, uh, and uh, into the food supply and making it available to everyone uh, at a reasonable price. And when you begin to think about uh, the price of food and you realize how much of that is tied up uh, with transportation from warmer climes uh, so that we can enjoy any fruit, any vegetable at any time of the year, <laughs> then you realize that you're actually part of the larger um climate change agenda as well. So you can, you know, begin to identify all of the players in all of the different movements that your issue touches on, for starters. Now, it's going to be impossible to work with all of those. So then you have to decide which of those players um, are most closely aligned with my values and with my intentions and that I can work with given the limited resources that I have. So you have to make a strategic call as to amidst all of those, which are the ones that you're going to uh, work with. And then your decision has to be 
what can I contribute? How much of my time, how much of our organization's time and resources are we going to allocate? Is it going to be 1%? Is it going to be 5%? I'd be, I'd be happy if we began to allocate or uh, think about devoting even 1% to 2% of our time to movement building uh, as, as a beginning. Because I think once people do that, then they'll begin to realize that there's a practical value uh, to this that actually uh, improves the day-to-day organizational challenges as well. Yeah, interesting. Thank you for, for that example. Um, and I want to touch on on basic income, but before we get to that, um, earlier I mentioned uh, the family movement. Would you be able to talk a little bit to that, Al, and, and maybe what the current state of that movement is? Um, well, let's, if, if we step back a bit, there's, I mean, there's many arms of, in the disability movement, but, you know, for simplicity's sake, there's the, the, the individual arm and there's the family arm. And so within the family arm, I, uh, I think it's not uh, as strong uh, as it, as it could be. Um, um, one, I don't see the kind of representation from younger family members that uh, used to be there uh, 20 years ago. So that tells me that the existing players um, either aren't reaching out or the agenda that they've developed is not relevant uh, to um, younger families. Um, it also, um, you know, alerts me that the medium of expression of conversation and engagement has changed dramatically and it, and it has me wondering whether the current limitations of the family arm are partially related to, um, our limited adaptation, uh, into the social media world. Those are a couple of thoughts that I have, uh, Eric. I, I don't know how you experience it. I know, I know you're much younger, you know, than I am. Um, but, um, I do wonder, uh, about the relevance of the issues, um, and, uh, the, the means of engagement that the movement I was part of uses and continues to use in the main compared to what excites, attracts, um, and is utilitarian to um, younger brothers, sisters, parents, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from from my perspective, and in, um, in this space, it's the, the most of the families that I've connected with are their son or daughter is you know late mid to late twenties or older, um, and and you're right in terms of that younger younger generation, and and I don't really know why there isn't that um level of engagement if it's if it's uh just a a matter of figuring out how to reach them um like you mentioned through maybe it's social media or um if it's just the the agenda um doesn't meet up with what their what their needs are what they're facing um I i don't really have the answer uh either but similar similar experience to to what you've explained i mean as a um as a place to start, I'd be really interested in um, 
bringing together the you know the the leaders the emerging leaders mm-hmm. in the disability world and you know I, there are dozens and dozens of of blogs um that uh, are sponsored written produced by you know by families mm-hmm. and um it would be very interesting to convene the online uh uh family disability world and and to ask or maybe even through that process to discover uh you know the priorities and challenges uh that they're addressing uh, at the same time i think there is something significant happening among individuals with disabilities themselves i i like to call it a, an evolution of consciousness uh there is a there is a shift happening in how uh people with disabilities see themselves and see themselves in the world that seems to me to be different uh than the way uh individuals saw their place in the world even 10 years ago and so those are two two big shifts that would be worth in my view paying attention to if we are looking at a refresh or a revitalization mm-hmm. of the family arm of the disability world. Yeah, I find that really interesting. So sticking with the individual um arm of uh, the disability movement and the evolution of consciousness, can you dive in a little deeper into what you're noticing? Well, I, I mean, I'll tell a little Uh, you know a little story uh, uh turned the tables you know on on myself um my my daughter liz was uh, scheduled to do a spoken word poem accompanied by uh, a guitarist last fall at at an event uh, at a conference it was the closing event at the conference and she has done these before and in the past um you know she's prepared in advance you know i i i don't want to say i've worked with her but i certainly have been aware of the fact that she's you know been prepared uh she may have read it off her iphone but she was reading something that she had prepared in advance and and that was was quite cool and uh was received quite well this time um <laughs> we're we're sitting at the banquet table waiting for the evening performance to begin and uh throughout the day I've said to her so have you got your got your poem ready or you got your piece ready no not yet I'm thinking about it um and uh when I asked her at dinner time she finally said to me don't worry I'll think of something I've got it in hand and <laughs> and so I'm I'm pacing around the back of the room uh she walks up to the front of the stage when she's introduced and she says hi uh my name is Liz uh i want to tell you a, a little something about myself i'm an artist and i'm a poet and uh and i have down syndrome and what that means is that sometimes it takes me uh a little bit longer to learn things so enough about me and then she snaps her finger and cued in the guitarist and spoke spontaneously for i guess about 5 minutes and 
And the audience was cheering and they were right with her. And, and she was obviously capturing something, you know, in the crowd, uh, notwithstanding her old man's worry and anxiety. And what, what I took from that story is a sort of a, a confidence in her uh, ability, uh, in her artistic expression. I also uh, took from that that she was not going to hide uh, the fact that she had a disability. So it was both the real deal and it was no big deal. Now, I come out of an era when we actually, in many ways, were asking people to forget about their disability or to push it right in the background. And we were asking society, in effect, to not notice the disability. And it's caused me to wonder whether, you know, we were fooling ourselves, but no, <laughs> with no one else. So I am seeing a, a, a kind of a, an evolution in what I call consciousness um, that seems to me parallel to the kind of consciousness raising that happened in the 60s and 70s with women or uh, among African-Americans uh, in the civil rights movement. And by that, I mean, as people beginning to take back the language, beginning to describe their situations, their contacts, the way they see it, the way they're experiencing it, and not in the language of those who don't experience that, no matter how benevolent we may think we are as, you know, as parents or as men, et cetera. So, so uh, I saw Liz as basically defining her own uh, agenda. And as soon as that, as soon as I began to see that, I began to see that everywhere <laughs> uh, among individuals uh, that I, you know, I meet, uh, you know, pretty regularly, and uh, and I'm sure it's been going on for an awfully long time. I'm just becoming aware of it now, but I think it is so significant that I don't, you know, that I think it demands that those of us who are parents or service providers or allies and advocates have to stop, pause, and think about what role we have, if any, and for sure to make sure that we don't get in the way. Mm -hmm. That's a, a great story. Thank you for sharing it. And um, I imagine there were quite a few emotions flowing through your body as, as during that you know moment as uh, as Liz got up on stage. Um, I just wanted to share as you were sharing that story, Al, um, just some thoughts of of my sister and and watching really her evolution of consciousness and thinking about what contributed to that because um, she's grown tremendously over the last couple of years and um, you know making her own decisions and growing her confidence and um, building relationships and um, for me I think what what the change has been is holding Sarah capable so uh, allowing her to um, take some risks, allowing her to make her own decisions, um, and that's enabled her to, to grow um, tremendously, and um, it's been quite a, an amazing thing to watch. Well, hold on, because I think, uh, <laughs> I think we're in for a very interesting ride now. Um, there, are, um, there are groups of people that have emerged uh, uh, you know, across Canada who are, I would say, interpreters of this phenomenon or mediators 
um, or chronicles, chroniclers of it. One is a group out of Montreal. I don't know if you know them. They're called Exico, E-X-E-K-O. Um, their material is available in both French and English, and they have developed something that they call intellectual mediation. So their presumption is intellectual capability or competence. So they work from that uh, presumption or assumption and, and uh, have defined their job is making sure that others understand clearly and completely what the individual is saying, what their meaning is, etc. So they're not tampering with it. They're not contaminating it. They're acting in the, you know, in the best um, 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 uh, role of interpreter uh, to ensure that that is is understood. Um, there's a there's a playwright here in Vancouver who, uh, you know, over the last five years has begun to work with a, a young man um, who has Down syndrome, and they uh, they have just recently. Um, premiere to play at Toronto's Luminato Festival, and then it went on to the National Arts Centre as part of Canada's 150th. And it's a play that came out of uh, Niall's um, imagination, co-written with uh, the playwright um, um, that, you know, that I was, uh, that I mentioned. And um, it uh, it is a, a tour de force uh, in terms of the, the interaction between uh, between these two uh, immensely creative people. And I think um, it is uh, in many ways a form of cultural um, uh, mediation. Um, the playwright, um, the established playwright who's been around for a long time, uh, his name is Marcus Yusuf, and his company is called New World Theatre. And they have provided an opportunity for actors with and without disabilities to work together to ensure that what's produced on stage is compatible with the imagination of this young man with Down syndrome. It's called King Arthur's Night. It's about his unique uh, uh, perspective on, uh, on the King Arthur legend as you're ever going to hear. But this is another example of this kind of evolution of consciousness that I was talking about, Eric. Yeah, interesting, fascinating. I'll have to see if I can I, I can check that out. Um, I, I I did profile him in my blog a couple of weeks ago, and so there's there's online links to um, to um, dress rehearsals at the Banff Center and uh, a number of reviews of their performances, etc. So I think you'll get a good taste for what I'm talking about. Okay, fantastic. And I'll share, uh, I'll include a, a link to that blog for the listeners of the podcast in the show notes so that they can access that as well. Um, let's, uh, let's shift into, um, basic income, Al. I know that that's something that, that you're working on. Um, for our listeners that might not have heard of basic income, can you just give a, a high level overview of, of what that is? Well, probably, um, the best example I could use would be the guaranteed annual income for seniors. So that's a supplement on top of the old age security uh, for people um, who have limited financial means. And taking that concept and blending it with what has become um, 
a worldwide uh, approach to addressing people's poverty, basic income, um, we are proposing uh, here in British Columbia and across Canada uh, the equivalent of a guaranteed annual basic income for people with disabilities, which means that we want uh, to end the welfare framework that has income restrictions and um, that penalizes people for going over uh, certain um, uh, allowable uh, limits and to have, um, if you will, their income treated in the income tax system and to have them be given uh, a basic monthly income uh, with no requirements for reporting uh, and none of the other welfare accoutrements that currently exist. And is is this being done anywhere in the world right now that you know? Um, it's uh, it's being uh, experimented uh, in pilot projects and demonstrated project demonstration projects in many countries around the world. The Ontario government has a number of demonstration uh, projects. Um, that they have uh, just committed to, and they uh, uh, certainly include uh, some people with disabilities in those pilots. Um, what we are proposing is that the whole cohort, that all people with disabilities in British Columbia who currently receive disability benefits be taken out of the welfare system, be given a guaranteed annual basic income and to have any additional income that they earn uh, treated through the income tax system the way uh, the rest of us are, uh, the rest of our incomes are. Right. And that would be, so would that basic income be considered kind of, uh, tax-free or would that would there, that additional income be put on top of the, the basic income? Yeah, the additional income. So the basic amount would still uh, uh, have people under the um, under the limits uh, of uh, require of, of of having to pay income tax. But if for some reason you were to earn an awful lot more, uh, then let the income tax system take care of you, rather than to render you ineligible for disability benefits for a period of time, and then you go back on once your once your money has gone. Right, right. That makes sense. So. For for listeners, is there ways that they can um, can support uh, you know the implementation or the the movement of, of basic income? There's Canadian Basic Income Network uh, for starters, and uh, there is a coalition of disability organizations in British Columbia that are bringing forward a proposal um, to the new government that we have in British Columbia. We're actually seeking all party support, but obviously we have to work with, uh, you know, with the, with the current government. Um, and, um, and so uh, that, that uh, uh, coalition includes uh, Inclusion BC, um, it includes PLAN, my uh, original uh, organization, and it includes the coalition uh, of people with disabilities. So there's a range of disability-related organizations in British Columbia. Uh, so that, uh, you know, if people are interested, uh, I think I have links again on another blog post I made 
uh, I wrote earlier this year, Eric, if that's if that's of any value. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I'll link to that uh, as well, Al. Um, and we're kind of just going back and forth over email uh, earlier in the week to talk about uh, topics. And I had mentioned that um, in a, a talk that I was was uh, listening to put on by uh, Partners for Planning at a Toronto, uh, Ted Kuntz was talking and, and he mentioned, um, Al, that, you know, he was uh, hoping that you were going to write a book uh, titled um, How Disability Saved the World. And you let me know that you've started to work on that. Are you able to share a little bit of, of, about that or, or give us a bit of a, a sneak peek? Um, well, I'm, I'm deep in it. I, I don't think that title will survive, okay. <laughs> but uh, I have a I have an interest in um, revealing to the world what I've discovered over nearly four decades uh, of the immense uh, talent, ingenuity, uh, and range of contributions that have been made uh, by people with disabilities or by people affected by uh, those who have disabilities. So uh, I think that's what Ted was referring to when uh, he and I used to talk about this, is that um, this this conversation of ours between Ted and I started when uh, there were books like How the Scots Invented the Modern World, How the Irish Saved Civilization, and How the Greeks Did Whatever. Right. And, and uh, I, I remember saying to him, we should write a book about how people with dis- disabilities will save the world. And um, um, so that that's the genesis. genesis. I, I think that the line that consistently goes through my mind as I'm writing right now is that if the history of the world was written without the contributions of people with disabilities, you would not recognize the world. People with disabilities constitute the largest minority group in the world. And it's an even more significant group if you add uh, their family, their friends, and others who are advocates and, and supporters. So this is a force that bounces the world yet it gets very little recognition. So the challenge I've set myself in the book is to only write about individuals in the world of disability that are part of popular culture in some way or have been part of popular culture. So they could be politicians, they could be inventors, they could be mathematicians, they could be artists, could be singers, actors, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I am wanting to work with the idiom of popular culture and create what I think will be a, a series of aha moments and surprises on the part of the reader when they realize um, the sheer force and ingenuity of, uh, of people with disabilities that already exist in popular culture. I mean, I, I just one. I mean, everybody knows about Helen Keller, I suppose. Um, but um, you know, you, you think about uh, popular, or think about um, Michael J. Fox, and he's actually got a code for addressing adversity that I think would be of benefit 
to anyone who reads it. Uh, so that's what I'm playing around with right now, Eric. Cool. I'm excited to read that when it comes out. Um, and as you were talking, the question that popped into my mind is, how has disability changed my world? And um, just the immediacy of, of my sister um, having a disability, um, the answer that came into my mind is, I'm more loving, I'm more kind, I'm more open, I'm more patient. Um, so it's, it's, it's had a huge impact on me and, and my family. And, um, I'm a better person, I believe than, um, than I would be, uh, without it. So yeah, interesting. The real uh, challenge, um, I find with, with my writing, um, is to not default to disability as inspiration or the people with disabilities as you know, as, as uh, primarily inspires for others. And in fact, one of the working titles, you know, I have uh, is from, um, uh, is borrowed from Chuck Close, who's a, probably one of the, the wealthiest artists and printmakers in, uh, in, uh, in the United States. Um, and he has uh, three disabling conditions. And the, the phrase I like from him is, is inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> and um, so we're talking about people that you and I know who have made significant achievements uh, in a variety of domains, uh, large and small, superhuman and everyday. And the point is, um, is that are there lessons that we can learn from that world that will be useful to us in dealing with the tumult <laughs> and troubles uh, that we experience, either personally or on a on a uh, larger political level? Right. Yeah. So you're kind of deconstructing uh those stories and pulling out and, and synthesizing uh, useful lessons that we can carry with us. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that that's what I'm going to be able to do. I don't frankly know if I'm up to the challenge, if I'm a little hesitant in talking about it or not making that much sense. It, it's because I'm still, I'm still struggling with it. I'm in, enjoying what I'm learning immensely uh, but I sure want to make sure um, I do <laughs> the the individual's um, uh, justice and not be uh, another person who writes about disability as inspiration. Right. right. Yeah, I love the approach that you're taking. Um, so just a couple more questions here for you, Al. Um, if you had a billboard that was shared with the world, what would you put on that billboard? Um, every day, everywhere, just about everyone is involved in taking care of a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, dot, dot, dot. 
Hmm. I like that. Uh, dot, dot, dot is that the, that almost um, all of the conversation about care in Canada is about paid professional care. And yet the reality is that 80% of the care in Canada is given by family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And it's happening every day, all the time, everywhere. And it's the, it's the invisible architecture that makes the other kind of care possible and all of our jobs our ability to perform our jobs possible, taking care of children, taking care of people who are sick, who have long-term illness or disability or who are down on their luck. That is the essence of who we are. Um, and um, maybe I could persuade you to bring a link in, but uh, my wife Vicky has just written an article um, that she syndicates to weekly newspapers uh, across Canada on the 150th anniversary of Canada um, with the title uh, C stands for caring. And it, it's an attempt to capture that. Um, so my apologies for um, a, a bit of an ambiguous slogan. Yeah. <laughs> when you no, it, that's great. I'll, um, I'll definitely include that link um, within the, the podcast notes. And it's interesting um, as you were describing uh, that we're all um, carers. I, that's going going back for me. Uh, reading um, Simon Sinek's book, uh, "Leaders Eat Last," he talks about uh, human evolution and uh, how we uh, evolved into uh, working together in tribes, about 100 to 150 people. And within that tribe, it was everybody's job to to help each other. Um, to really to survive um and that's that desire to to help one another um is ingrained within us as as humans um so it's interesting i haven't read that book but i'm uh, i like uh, i like the thesis and i like the way that you've uh, that you've expressed it and we see this of course in 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 the world that you and i have been part of uh for uh for most of our life in the in the disability world mm -hmm. and um and uh, it is uh, it's to be honored it's to be acknowledged it's to be respected and it's it's not to be um taken advantage of for sure so al where can uh listeners go to to learn more about some of the things that we've talked about or to learn more about you well these days um i write a regular blog and so uh, a lot of these thoughts uh end up that we've talked about end up uh you know as a blog so i'd be i'd be delighted to add a few more people to the dozens of readers i currently have <laughs> And uh, so that uh, I'm pretty easy to find um, as long as my name is spelled correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Alatmansky.com Al or .ca. And uh, so I write regularly about that. And that's also a place that I use to alert, uh, you know, people to some of these initiatives inside the disability world, but outside. So my, my intention is to hold both worlds uh, intention because I don't really see them uh, as separate. Uh, and so, uh, I'll, I'll write uh, about issues 
that are affecting uh, people who are wanting to make the world a better place. That's essentially um, the framework that I have. It's a it's a belief. It comes from a belief that ordinary people doing uh, extraordinary things uh, is the only thing that has ever changed the world. Uh, and I'm interested in doing whatever I can to uh, shine a light on that. I love that. And I'm a subscriber, one of the dozens of subscribers to your blog, and I look forward to reading it every week. So so thanks for putting that uh, that out there and, and sharing your thoughts, Al. I definitely enjoy it. And I recommend that uh, listeners to the podcast go and subscribe. So I'll also include a, a link to uh, to Al's website in, in the show notes. Um, Al, we talked a bit about your book, uh, Impact, Six Patterns uh, to Spread Your Social Innovation. Uh, where could our, if, if someone's interested in picking that up, where's the best place to, to pick up your book? Uh, well, uh, Amazon has it, or you can get it on a, if you're a Kobo reader, as I am, you can get it through Kobo, or you can order, um, Eric, you can order directly from my website. Okay. Um, it's probably the cheapest, probably the cheapest <laughs> way to get it. Perfect. Okay, fantastic. Well, Al, it's been uh, truly an honor and a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to chat with you today and um, to to share this wealth of uh, knowledge and, and ideas with uh, with our listeners. So, uh, thank you very much. Pleasure to talk, Eric. All the best. Thanks, so. Al. Hey, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Al Admanski. It was such a joy talking to Al and, and learning about his insights and the way that he sees uh, the world and the him sharing his experience on bringing social innovations to life. Uh, if you're a social innovator or trying to make big change in the world, I strongly recommend that you pick up his book, Impact. It reads like a guidebook to to help you bring your social innovation to life. So highly recommend that. And the best place to pick that up and to learn more about Al is on his website, aladmanski.com. And it's spelled A-L-E-T. M-A-N-S-K-I dot com. And if housing is something that you're working on, uh, feel free to go to the website and get the free download on creating your home. So there's this great workbook that's going to help guide you through creating your vision and starting to implement your vision for what your home looks like. So go on over to the website. It's empoweringability.org. And... I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. I'd like to thank all of our listeners that have left us a review on iTunes. Your reviews help me understand what I'm doing well, what I can improve on on the podcast, what you want to hear. So it's great feedback that you're providing. So please continue to do so. Also, by leaving a five-star review, it helps other people find the podcast. So thanks so much for those reviews and keep them. Next week on the podcast, we are going to be continuing our mini-series on housing uh, for people with a disability, and we have an exciting guest, uh, Jackie Goldstein. So Jackie uh, was a psychology professor at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. So she resides out of the United States, and she's also the author of Voices of Hope for Mental Illness, Not Against With. And 
I'm going to read here part of a review for part of our book. So I think it gives you a good insight into what we're going to be talking about in the podcast. So the review on our book is from Stephen uh, Moffick. And he says, uh, perhaps you've heard of Anthony Bourdain. So he's the world-renowned chef who hosts television show uh, Parts Unknown, uh, reflecting around his travels around the world uh, to eat uh, and drink with people um, without fear and pre- prejudice. Um, so perhaps, though, you've not heard of Jackie Goldstein. If not, now is the time. So Dr. Goldstein is an academic psychologist without fear and prejudice who's traveled uh, to parts of the world unknown, uh, where she has eaten and drank, studied and worked with people who have so-called severe mental illnesses. So um, in this book, Jackie really starts to go over the different models and uh, different places in the world that she's visited that really take a community, more of a community care approach uh, for people with mental illness and and disabilities. So it's going to be fun and exciting exploring those different um, models with Jackie. Um, And one that I'm really excited to cover is the story of uh, Hale Belgium. So uh, we're going to cover a story in Hale and a a few others out of the United States, uh, such as uh, BCH and, and a couple more, which you'll learn more about next week. So uh, thanks for listening today, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability live a full and meaningful life.